Well, this has been a good series, and Pastor Chuck are really impressed with the questions that you're asking. The questions that you ask just mean that you want your life tainted by the Bible. You want your life tainted by God's Word. When you ask, is this okay, or does the Bible say anything about this, what you're asking is, whatever God wants, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to change my mind to that. And that is a very healthy thing for a Christian to want to do. You'll probably notice that we're really focusing in on the questions that have to do with application of biblical principles, living out biblical principles. And that's the questions that we'll uh, do our best to address tonight, is questions about should I, could I, what does the Bible say about? And there are biblical principles that cover lots of things, and that's what Pastor Chuck and I have wanted to do. Open up your eyes to the fact that the Bible addresses a lot of things that you do every day in a broad way, but not in a very specific way, and that's what principles are. They're umbrellas that cover lots of very different things. And so Pastor Chuck and I don't want to be the Bible answer guys, and so that's why we're actually happy in not getting through all of your questions. We want the Bible to be the answer for you, and we just want you to see how these principles are applied, and so if your question hasn't been addressed by the end of tonight, I'm okay with that. Now you get to go, and if you're married with your spouse, get to go and find principles that apply to the thing that you asked about. You get to do the work. You get to do the research. You know, Pastor Chuck and I have done some for you, but now you get to go do it so you can see and allow God's Word to taint the life that you live. All right? Well, let's open in prayer, and we'll jump right in. Uh, Dear God, we thank you so much for... uh, these last five weeks in uh, studying your word in this way. And um, we pray that uh, we would do exactly what we talked about, that we would bend our will or our ways or our ideas um, to yours in all of these areas that we're going to address tonight. Tonight in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to jump right in with the first question up here. We had a lot of questions about music, And so I try to encapsulate those into one question, so I might go a little long on this one, but try to get as many of the nuances of the questions as possible in here. Is it okay for Christians to listen to secular music? There's one question, we'll uh, attack that one. What type of worship music should I listen to? We'll get to that one. And what about worship music that's good, but the author or the singer has other beliefs that I disagree with? Well, uh, these are some really big topics, and interestingly, the Bible says almost nothing about any of those um, things. The Bible talks a lot about music in the Bible. Um, The Psalms is an entire book about music. The Bible talks about music being a result of us knowing more about God, and so we would worship Him in music, but worship Him in lots of other ways. But on these three questions... The Bible mentions almost nothing, and that's kind of a dangerous situation because when the Bible mentions almost nothing, it is now a gray area. It's not black or white. It's a gray area, and so when it comes to gray areas, we spend a lot of time coming to a conclusion in these areas on our own. We put our time and energy and effort in coming to a conclusion, a heartfelt, Holy Spirit-driven conclusion, and so when we do that, sometimes we hold that conclusion that we've come to with more fervency or with more passion than we even do simple truth out of the Bible because that came easy. It was just told to us. We didn't have to work for it. But this, um, but this gray area conclusion that we came to, we almost hold with more fervency because this is mine and I spent time with it. 
Right, so that's just kind of a warning in these kind of areas. So let's get, get to that first question first. Is it okay for Christians to listen to secular uh, music? So here's a principle, if, if that's what we're doing in this series, is to address principles and have them apply to things that aren't specifically clear in Scripture. Well, here's a principle. Philippians 4.8 would be a principle that would cover this area of music and of secular music specifically. And here is what that verse says. It says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things or listen to this music. And so that would be your filter. There's your filter. A list. And obviously this is talking about words in the song. Notes can't be secular or Christian. It's an inanimate object. You know, There's nothing Christian about a note. It's obviously the lyrics that we're talking about here. And so if the lyrics in that air quote secular song are promoting immorality or violence or whatever, well, probably that doesn't fit the filter. And then you'd probably say, well, that's probably not the right thing. Or if it promotes things that, that God opposes, or if it glorifies things that God says specifically is evil. You'd probably stay with that. That would be the filter. That would be the principle. That, But if, if the song or the music or whoever you're listening to doesn't fit, doesn't, aren't those things, you get to decide. Okay? So that's the answer. Go for it. You get to pick. Remember, this is the gray area, the, the freedom that you have, the liberty that believers have. Okay? So let's get to that next question. What type of worship music should I listen to? So now we've taken it out of the secular and into Christianity. And like I say, I think we're talking lyrics here. We're not talking musical notes. And so when you take music and you put it in the world of Christians, it gets a little dicey. But then when you take music and you put it in church, <laughs> division just blows up in a church. I mean, music is what will divide a church before just about anything else. It comes from not focusing on biblical truth, black and white issue, it's because we're focusing on the things that are the gray areas, the preferences, the style of music, the genre of music, and that's where all the bickering begins. There are some Christians that say, you cannot worship God if you have any instruments involved at all. And the reason is, is because they didn't have in those instruments back in the New Testament, at least that's their theory. And so we're not going to have any instruments at all. And then there are other people, maybe some of you, who enjoy the hymns and you really prefer to worship God musically with hymns because that's what you grew up with. And there are some other people who say, I really like things a little more modern, a little bit more contemporary. And then there are some Christians who say, I cannot worship God without the laser and the smoke and all of, all of those things, you know? And all of those are fine. They're preferential. They're cultural. And those things will change over time. The difficulty is, is when we take, here's my conviction, that the, the Bible doesn't say yes or no. There's nowhere in Scripture that we could say any particular genre, um, style of music is evil. But when we take something that we've spent time and we've come to a conclusion for ourselves, this is what I really prefer, and we own that more than we own even biblical truth, all of a sudden we turn that into some sort of, this is the right way to do it. And any other way is now evil. And I don't think anywhere in Scripture we can find where a particular style, what type? It's the lyrics that drive it. Do the lyrics fit? Do the lyrics work? And so let's go to that next question, and we'll kind of get to the conclusion of what I mean by lyrics. 
Um, the last question is, is what about worship music that's good? Maybe I'm reading into this, but I'm assuming that the lyrics are legitimate. They're, they're accurate. They honor Jesus, you know, a high view of God, promotes the gospel, you know, brings unity to believers who sing, you know, that sort of thing. What about worship music that's good, but the author of that or the singer of it has other beliefs that I disagree with? Should, should we listen to that music or play that kind of music? And I, I think I'd look at it this way. If you're looking for an author or a songwriter or a musician to believe everything you believe, you will never find them. You wouldn't even sing the Psalms of David. And so you're not going to find an author or a singer that believes everything that you believe. You're just not going to find that. You won't find that person in this church that believes everything that you believe. You're not going to find that person in your family that believes everything that you believe. Your spouse doesn't even believe everything that you believe. If they say they do, they're just trying to avoid a fight, okay? That's all they're doing, all right? And maybe I could even take a step further and say, you don't even believe everything you believe. I'm like, yeah, I do. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you believe everything the exact same way today as you did 20 years ago from the Bible? I hope not, because that's what a growing Christian does is spends time in God's Word, and it refines, and it deepens our roots, and we say, "Ah, I'm not really sure if that was legit. There are things that I believe differently today than I did 20 years ago, because God has refined me in those areas over time. So I don't even believe everything that I believe, because I hope that over time, God is going to refine me even more. And so if you're looking for someone, an author of a book or an author of a worship song that you're going to sing that believes everything you believe, you're not singing any music ever because you won't even sing your own songs because you don't believe everything that you believe. So the lyrics are the point. Do the lyrics fit? This isn't about the author. This isn't about the style. This isn't about the genre. It's about the, the lyrics. A perfect example of this is the song Amazing Grace. I brought a hymnal from Grace Community Church before we started using the screens and, and things. We actually sung out of books. We actually sung out of books. And there's actually... And so there's, there's a great song in here, Amazing Grace. I love that song. I used to sing that song to my kids out of a hymnal at home. Um, before they told me to stop because <laughs> they're too old and beyond that. And we still sing Amazing Grace at the conclusion of our communion services. Now, Amazing Grace was written by an Anglican priest in the 1700s. You want to talk about some doctrinal differences? It, we would have some doctrinal differences between us and the Anglican church. But Amazing Grace, that's a legit song. The truths, the lyrics are biblical and God-honoring. Um, and, you know, sometimes we hold hymns to be the, the things that, that would be the best to sing. Well, there's a hymn in here called In the Garden that is the most inane. Inane is another word for stupid lyrics I have ever heard in my life. I, I would pick the most modern of praise songs beyond this one any day of the week. It's not about genre or type or style. It's about lyrics that are honoring to, to Jesus Christ, that uh, have a high view of the gospel, that promote the gospel, that confirm the things that we know about who God is. 
um, and that unify believers when they sing them, okay? So our frame of reference, that principle at the very beginning that we talked about there was that long list of Philippians 4.8. Okay, the next question that you sent in, uh, how does a Christian know when it's the right time to change jobs? You know, I have a little experience in this because I, I had a few jobs um, in a 28-year period. Of, and 22 years of that 28 years, I was a, a Christian. And really, it kind of boils down to the reason. The reason I'm going to actually think about changing a job. In other words, do I have the heart of God as to why I'm actually contemplating changing a job? I have to ask God okay, I ask myself, what is the purpose? Why am I thinking about changing a job? Does that purpose actually line up with God's will? For James says, and James 4.3 says, if you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So, I mean, this fits this application as almost a lot of things that we're asking God for. But according to James, as Christians, um, we can actually hinder God's answer to our request if we have the wrong motives. Um, However, on the flip side, if our motives are true to God and uh, if they line up with his will, I think God would honor that change. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Let me read that to you. This is the confidence of which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So not only is our reason for a job change important and it needs to line up with God's will, but our actual lifestyle, how we live our life, also needs to line up with God's will. For King David stated in uh, Psalm 66, 18, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So if we are praying for a particular job change in our lives, our prayers can either be hindered or they can be welcomed by God, depending on whether our lives are lining up with God's will or not. You know, there are many parents out here, right? You have children. Does this make sense if... Let's say your children come to you with a request, and they're asking you, can I mow the lawn? Um, Or can I clean my room? Or can I take out the trash? Or can I wash your car? I mean, that would kind of line up with your will, wouldn't it? And you'd probably say, oh, sure, go ahead, do it. Well, it's the same thing with God. If we're lining up with God's will, he's all for it. So the first principle of knowing when it's the right time to make a job change Uh, One, does my reason for my job change and my life line up with God's will? Secondly, does my seeking a job change line up with what God has already called me to do as his child? For example, at the time I had my first major job change, I was um, 26 years old, one year in the Lord, with my first mortgage, three-year novice husband, and a month away from being a new father. I had to ask myself, would this job change hinder or enhance my ability to continue 
to fulfill God's call to carry out my role as a husband and a father. But even more important to those roles as husband and father, God's call to me as a child is also important. That's a higher priority, me following Christ. So would this job change allow me to actually draw closer or farther away from God in my ability to allocate time to worship on Sundays, to that personal time, uh, reading and studying the Word of God and prayer time with the Lord? I had to ask that my question in regards to that. Now, fast forward 12 years into my life. I'm now 38 years old, husband of 15 years, father of three, high school ministry leader, and an elder at Grace Community Church. So now I have to look at, okay, I'm changing jobs again, and I have to look at, does it enhance or hinder the ability for me to carry out the role that God has already called me to do? in regards to the husband, the father, the, the ministry leader, and the leader in the church as well. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4.1, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So the second principle of knowing when it's the right time to actually change uh, your job is, am I walking with Christ in a worthy manner? from which God has actually called me. So if a Christian holds, I think, to these two principles, I, I know without a doubt God will kind of open or close doors of opportunities for you to either get that job or not. When I look at all this, I, I think he will. I know he will if, if you're lined up with these two areas. But I want to close with one third final reason, and that is if you're going to look for a job it's best to look for a job when you already have a job, okay? Don't quit your present job until you go find another job. That's it. <laughs> All right, take note. Thank you, Pastor. All right, what does the Bible say about having a microchip under your skin? There are people in Sweden putting microchips under their skin for access to their cars, to pay bills. And then they put a reference on this question of Revelation chapter 13, 15 to 17. And that is referencing the time that, uh, known as the tribulation, where the Antichrist is running the world, a one-world government, and he requires people to get what's called the mark of the beast— and so that's what these verses are referencing, the mark of the beast, where it's going to be required for you to buy and to sell to interact in culture to get the mark, either on your right hand or on your forehead. If you don't have a right hand, then you put it on your forehead. And if you don't have a forehead, you have bigger, you have bigger problems. All right? so, and so that's the time that this is referencing. And, and the mark is really a divider um, between those who are pro-Antichrist and those believers who are on planet Earth at the time. Um, the dividing line, you take, if you take the mark, you're with Antichrist. If you don't, you're with Christ, and probably you're going to get it. And so that's what they're referring to here. And the Bible says nothing about microchips. This was written in the first century, right? So the answer is it's not there. But I bet there are some other questions that are underlying this one, and I bet there are three uh, one is, are microchips the mark of the beast? 
or should I get a microchip if it comes to the U.S. for me to do things, and how does that play into the mark of the beast? Well, are microchips the mark of the beast? Easy answer, no. No. And here's the two reasons why you would know that microchips are not the mark of the beast. We are still here. Believers, from the time that Jesus Christ dies on the cross and rises from the grave until the rapture, the taking off of Christians, all those Christians will be taken up into heaven, both dead and alive, will be taken up into heaven. As the tribulation starts sometime after the rapture, we won't be here anymore. There will be Christians at that point in time because many people will be saved after the, the rapture of the church, but we won't be here. The, the church-age Christians won't be here. So if you're here, it's not the mark of the beast. We haven't gotten to the tribulation yet. Uh, the Antichrist is not the one world leader yet. So are they? No. Another reason that you would know that it's not the mark of the beast is it's very clear in Scripture that people know what the mark of the beast is. And so th there's no question. I wonder if this is it or not. If you're wondering if it is or not, there's your answer. It's not. Because you will know, right? So that answers the question, is it the mark of the beast? Should I get a microchip uh, if it comes to the U.S.? Hey, your dog already has one. More power to you. Go, <laughs> go for it. It's like um, Pastor John got me going on Apple Pay. Um, app, I don't know if you guys use Apple Pay or Google Wallet. You just take a picture of your credit card. It loads it all into your phone. You don't even carry a wallet anymore. And so all you do is you, you tap on the app, and you put your thumb on it, it scans your fingerprint. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> scans your fingerprint, and you just set it on the cash register. Bloop, bloop. Done. Cashless society. I get paid direct deposit. I don't see any money. Bloop, bloop. On the register, I don't see any money. It's amazing. And so microchips, I, as I imagine, are working similar to that, you know. <laughs> Hey, now you don't even need your thumb. It just reads your face and it unlocks it. So, so how does this play into the mark of the beast? Um, I have no idea. No, obviously the technology is there. Um, Satan could use microchips as the mark of the beast. He, Satan could use Apple Pay as the mark of the beast. I don't know. I don't know what he's going to use. But the good news in all of this is that believers won't even be here for any of that. All right? Let's move on to the next one, Pastor. Can people still get demon-possessed like back in Bible times? Well, first of all, let me just uh, set the record straight. Satan's real, right? He's a real force. He's a real active force today. Um, even the Apostle Paul writing to Christians, he warns in 1 Peter 5, 8, that be on a sober spirit, be on the alert. Um, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And even Apostle Paul, also writing to Christians in Ephesians 6, 12, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, uh, against powers, against the world, forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So Apostle Peter and Paul both give all Christians a kind of a clear warning that Satan is seeking someone to destroy, and that our fight here on earth is against the real active forces of darkness. There are many examples during Jesus' time that Satan was influencing people, possessed people. We know that uh, there was active forces of darkness 
that were actually controlling people. I mean, there's several, several examples. Just one quick one is in Capernaum. I just refer, refer to it. Jesus rebuking an unclean spirit that was controlling a man, and Jesus commanded the unclean spirit to be quiet. And then he cast out that spirit out of that man. That's Mark 1.25. And we also have an example later on, after Jesus already rose from the dead, went back up into heaven, and now the first century church, we have an example of Apostle Paul casting out demons in Ephesus that were controlling and possessing people during that time, you know, the first century church, uh, where it was said that actually God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul by healing the sick and casting out evil spirits, and that's Acts 19.11. Many years later, towards the end of Paul's ministry, when he writes a letter to Timothy, pastor of the Ephesus church, warning him, in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, and that's in 1 Timothy 4.1. These latter times, Paul is talking about the church age. We're kind of in the latter, latter times, but I mean, it's, we could go to the latter, latter, latter times, but it's just, we're in the church age, okay, the latter times. So, so to answer the question, can people still get demon-possessed, like back in the Bible times? I would say yes, because of these warnings that were given in Scripture. However, I would say not with the same intensity we see it as in the New Testament. And why do I say that? I say that because God is not authenticating anyone today these latter times, like he was, of course, his son Jesus, who had the the power over Satan and his demons. During Jesus' time, God was proving to that known world at that time that he was the promised anointed one, the Messiah of Israel. And then also during the apostles' time, God was proving to the known world at that time that they were spokesmen for God. And they were going to be writing and teaching God's actual truth and word. So, in other words, God is using Satan and his demons, really, that activity, that intense activity that they had at that time, for his advantage. However, that's not to say that today we, we don't battle the same active forces of Satan and his demons. I mean, it just means that it's, it's not with the same intensity. So I, I guess the question that might really come to mind then is, how are we to battle this less intense prevalent forces of darkness today, being that God is not actually authenticating his son, Jesus, or his apostles today. Well, because we have authority of God's truth written in this book, in our heart, from the Holy Spirit that lives within us, and it's the truth of the cross that renders Satan and his spirits of darkness powerless. It is the cross that frees those from the fear of death and the holding of those that are captive in their sin. And that's in Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. So as we as children of God are to put the truth of Jesus' work on the cross on display. This is how we're instructed to do it. I'm going to I'm just read a, a portion of scripture here. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. The Lord's bondservant, that's you and me, must not be quarrelsome but be kind to all, able to teach patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. And they 
may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So we as children of God have a responsibility, and that responsibility is to actually put the glory of God on display through his victory that he already has won through the grace of the cross. God is not doing any authenticating in us except as witnesses of being freed from the clutches of Satan and his demons who are we are no longer captive to sin and death. So can people get demon possessed like back in the Bible times? Yeah, but we don't see it as prevalent the same intensity as in the Bible times. Thank you, Pastor. We realize that there are volumes of books written on this. There's lots in scripture about this, so to smack it into five minutes is good job, Pastor. I did it. In six minutes. There you go. Right. Next. It's going to feel like whiplash here, going from so many different topics tonight. Um, should I be pledging allegiance to the American flag? Does this conflict with my love and allegiance to Jesus, my Savior and Lord? This is a good question. I'm impressed with this question. There might be some of you out here who are like, offended. Of course, we're supposed to, you know, you're patriotic, but this is a very introspective question. Someone who wants to honor Jesus even in their patriotism. I think it really comes down to the way that we define that word allegiance. The way that we define that word really determines yes or no, is this a biblical view or, or not? Um, and definitions are obviously all cultural. Um, I think in the Roman times, uh, in the first century here, I don't think you'd find a any Christian uh, saying the pledge, because the pledge in Roman times is Caesar is Lord. That is the pledge, right? So I don't think you'd find any Christian saying that. Now, here we are in the United States, and it's way different. When we say our pledge of allegiance is not Donald Trump is Lord, right? Our pledge of allegiance is way different. So there are two ways to use this word allegiance. One way to use that word is an undying commitment above anything else. An undying commitment above anything else. That'd be one way to describe the word allegiance. I'm committed above all other things to, to this. That would probably be a pretty hard thing for believers to say. That my country or my president is above my Lord Jesus is above my wife, is above my kids, is above my church. And so if that's the way that you define this word allegiance, if when you say the pledge of allegiance, that's what you're thinking, that I have an undying commitment above anything else, then no. Don't think a Christian should be saying that at all. But honestly, I've never met a Christian, I've never met a person who ever thought that. Have you? Undying commitment above anything else? Most people, when they read the word allegiance and when they say the Pledge of Allegiance, they're referring to the second way that you would define this word allegiance, and that would be loyalty as a citizen. Loyalty as a citizen. Remember, we're talking about principles in this series, and so here'd be a principle that this one would fall under. This is Titus 3.1, and this is the way that Christians respond to their government. It says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed in that government, that nation, that country that they live in. Loyalty as a citizen, being a good citizen doesn't mean you have to agree 
um, with what they're doing or the laws that they pass, but doing those things, being obedient, being submissive to the authorities, that is what a believer does. And so if that's the way that you view this, this word allegiance of being just a good citizen, then absolutely, I think it would be, it's biblical then for you to say the Pledge of Allegiance in that way. Let's go to the next one, Pastor. This one's for you. What does it mean to become all things to all men in 1 Corinthians 9? Okay, in order to answer this question, um, let's go straight to the text. So let me just read that in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. For though I am free from all men, this is Paul speaking, Apostle Paul, he says, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, those not being myself under the law, so that I might win those are under the law. These are, this is a tongue-twisting scriptures here, Okay. To those who were without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, and that I might win the weak. I became all things to all men, so that I might, by all means, save some. And then verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Well, first of all, Paul says in order to become all things to all men, he's saying really kind of to put his Christian freedom aside and making ourselves like a slave. Um, in the previous chapters of First Corinthians here, leading up to chapter 9, the Apostle Paul goes uh, in detail explaining Christian liberty. And in that area where he's talking about Christian liberty, and you guys are probably familiar about this because we talk about it a lot, um, and he talks about our responsibilities with Christian liberty, that there's actually a governing part of our liberty, and number one, to discern those things that are not profitable to me, that actually could gain control over me, and number two, to discern things that, are, that can open up a, a window of opportunity for me to actually sin. And then three, to discern those things that can actually cause other Christians to sin against their own conscience, ba basically making them stumble in their walk with Christ. These three biblical principles serve as an umbrella to govern our liberty in Christ. And so Paul says here in our text to this, in this question that he has given up his right in liberty in Christ to not only in the area where we're to govern in these three areas of responsibilities, but he's ready to actually to willingly give up his liberty altogether to be like a slave so that he can win others to Christ. And then in verse 20 and, uh, through 23 that we read, he explains how he becomes uh, or how he makes himself like a slave to the world first says, okay, I'm to the Jews, those group of people, they live by the law of Moses and believe that they can actually be saved by the law, law of works. So Paul makes himself like a Jew, becoming like a slave. Then he goes to the Gentile, does the same thing. You know, they're a the group of people, they live by a rule, um, live life 
to the fullest. Eat, drink, and be merry. You know, Paul makes himself like a slave, but by becoming like a Gentile. And then for the weak, another group of people who are spiritually ignorant to the things of God. And they actually suppress in life by just a physical suffering. Suppressed because they just suffer. They're in pain. They're in a lot of a lot of issues in their life. But Paul makes himself like a slave by becoming like the weak. So in verse 23, Paul uh, repeats the purpose from verse 19. He just says why he gives up his liberty in Christ to become like a slave, and that is to win the more. For it's all for the sake of the gospel, to win souls for Christ. So the answer to What does it mean to become all things to all men? It means, really, to give up your liberty as a Christian in order to become like a slave to the world for the sake of the gospel. But that kind of raises another question, and and that is, what's the criteria? I mean, to become all things to all men. I know, he he talked about it, right? To become like a Jew, like a Gentile, um, like the weak, to be all things to all men. Here's what I think the criteria is. We do it the same way Jesus gave up his liberty. He made himself a slave, right? He came to planet Earth. He was God the Son. He became a man so that he could live amongst us. And he willingly suffered, died, and was buried so that he could actually purchase us back to God. So to become all things to all men is to be like Christ, to love all men all people. doesn't matter who they are. doesn't matter where they come from. We don't put any conditions on them. We just humbly come alongside them and show them that uh, we're no better than they are. We were, were evil and dark in darkness as well, but God saved us, and so basically we're just sharing the hope that God has given us through Christ. And so that's how you can become all things to all men. Right, next on the list. Is it okay for a Christian to like Harry Potter? Uh, I have this computer software in my office where you can type in any word or phrase and it searches like 30 different English translations and going back to historical texts, you know, and can find any word anywhere. And so I type in Harry Potter. Guess how many results I get back? Zero. (laughs) And then I have these Greek lexicons in my office. And I start flipping through, looking for Harry Potter. Guess how many entries of Harry Potter there are in the Greek lexicons? Zero. The Bible says nothing about Harry Potter. This is an area of freedom. Okay? This is an area of liberty for you to use principles to apply that to your life. And I'm assuming this is a parent asking this. Apply it to your family and with your family. So remember, in these areas of biblical gray areas where there is no specificity, you shall read Harry Potter or you shall not read Harry Potter. Beyond that, when it's gray in between the black and the white, you have to come to a convicted decision in your own heart with the Holy Spirit leading you. Now remember, there are going to be other people in the same church that come to the opposite conclusion, and they are right too. And so the goal here is not for division, but for unity, assuming that all of us, each of us, even though we've come to a different conclusion— that all of us, though, have honored the Lord Jesus Christ in our decision. And so here would be a principle that you could use as a family in making a decision regarding Harry Potter or music 
or movie or any of those things. Remember, a principle is an umbrella that covers lots of decisions that you make. Okay? So even though the Bible doesn't specifically mention Harry Potter, there are principles that you can use to apply that to this decision as well. And here's that principle. It's Philippians 4.8, the same one that we used for our music one. I wanted you to see how principles work. Principles apply in all sorts of areas, but just for a reminder, this is Philippians 4.8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence or if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things or listen to that music or watch that movie or read that book. Okay? And so that's your filter. And so now you get to decide. Go for it. Um, you make that decision. But if it's with your kids, I would encourage you to include your kids in that decision-making process. Have them read this verse with you tonight. If you guys are talking about Harry Potter, if you're in here and you guys are talking about Harry Potter, you guys read this verse together tonight. You guys agree. For the next week, each evening, we will read this verse and we'll pray together about if this is right for us. And then at the end of the week, of the end of seven days, then we'll talk about if this is right for us. But include them in it. Don't just say yes or no. You can't read that or you can read, read that. You can't watch that or you can. That gives your kids no help in their future of making their own biblically-based, principle-driven decisions. Okay? So include your kids in however you decide to make that principle-driven conclusion. Pastor, why do we really have to tell anyone to pray for anything? Can't we just pray for ourselves? I like this question because it's bold. It says what a lot of us sometimes yeah, actually think, right? We hear a lot of things about people and their needs. A lot of times people have a lot of needs, and it can be overwhelming sometimes, you know, some of the things that they're suffering. And as much as any of us don't want to admit it, all of us have probably thought this at one time or another. Even the apostles got overwhelmed by the crowds of the people that kept trying to push in on, on uh, Jesus, trying to get time with him, and so that Jesus would actually bear their burdens and help and provide for their needs. But Jesus never refused any intercessory request at all. I mean, there's, you can go through scripture, and he never refused any one person that came up to him. He never ceased the moment to spend time his heavenly father in prayer on behalf of others ever he always sees that moment to do that in matthew 15 30 just an example great crowds came to him bringing them the lame the blind the crippled the the, the mute and many others and laid them at his feet and he healed them so jesus never grew impatient at any request but jesus did grow impatient on one particular time and it wasn't about a request. It was actually about a lack of request. Remember the story of the father that actually bringing his demon-possessed son to the disciples of Jesus? They attempted to help the boy, but it failed. And when Jesus learned of their failure, that's when he showed his frustration. Matthew 17, 17, he, he answered it this way. Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. I mean, why would Jesus react this way? I mean, why would he show a sign of, 
like impatience toward his apostles who couldn't heal this boy from the demon possession. It's simple. They never took the boy. They never took the boy to him. They didn't take him in person, and apparently they didn't take him in prayer. They attempted to heal the boy without calling Jesus. So Jesus commands his apostles to actually bring him here to him, and then Jesus had this strong word that followed to them, and that strong word was unbelief. Afterward, the disciples came to Jesus privately and asked, why could we not cast out the demon from the boy? And Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, meaning because your attempt to help him without calling me. So this example indicates that if we see a need for someone, God wants us to, to actually show our, our belief by, by coming to him and requesting his help in actually supplying that need. For Paul showed how good and acceptable this was to God when he prayed for others, and he was urging this particular scripture I'm going to read to you. He was urging Pastor Timothy. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. He says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. So when we see a need for a particular person and we bring that need to, to Jesus in prayer, God is pleased. For it shows our dependence on him. So the first biblical truth uh, on why we should actually pray for others and just not for ourselves is because it is really pleasing to God. It is pleasing to him, and it shows our belief and our dependence upon him. Second reason we should pray for others and not just for ourselves, because we see example after example after example in Scripture. Godly men praying and petitioning for others. Abraham prayed for the people in Sodom and Gomorrah uh, many times, over and over again, till it got down, you know, 50, then 40, then 30, and then, remember, um, that there were righteous people there. And then Moses prayed, petitioned numerous times for the people of Israel. Uh, Apostle Paul prayed for wisdom and power for the Christians in Rome, Romans 15. Paul prayed for knowledge and strength for the Christians in Ephesus. Uh, discernment for the Christians in Philippi, boldness for Philemon to share his actual faith. Paul prayed for the spiritual understanding for Christians in Colossae. Even Jesus, who is God in the flesh, but while on earth, he was fully man too. He even petitioned to his Heavenly Father, praying for others. Jesus prayed for the faith of Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-two. He prayed for the unity of the protection of his disciples in John 17, 11. He prayed for the unity and protection of all believers, John 17, 20. And Jesus prayed for the Father's love to be seen to all non-believers. And that's John 17, 24 through 26. So even though these two reasons we should pray for others, I am sure there are more, probably a lot more reasons why we should pray for others. But I want you to know what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't pray for ourselves either. 
okay? I'm not saying that because there are many, many uh, examples throughout Scripture that godly men are praying for themselves as well. Don't just tell people you're going to pray for them. Actually do it. Yes. (laughs) All right. Let's move on to the next one. As the 2020 presidential campaign gets in gear, what are the responsibilities of Christians in dealing with social media and politics? Okay, we've talked about politics and the government um, before in previous weeks, and if you want to hear kind of the principles regarding that, you can go back to our website and listen to it. I'll just repeat the principles real quick, and I want to get to a little uh, look at it from a different perspective. Principle number one in Matthew 5, Christians are salt. Uh, Christians are a preservative. They add flavor to our world. The reason that you have not been raptured off of planet Earth yet is because you are a preservative, a God-given preservative on planet Earth so that the world doesn't go down the toilet bowl any faster than it already is. Okay? That's partly why we are here, the, the toilet bowl of depravity and immorality. Obviously, we do know we are in a swirling pattern. Um, that's what the Bible tells us, but the Christians are a preservative in that. So you're in a place where you could vote. So vote. Vote biblically. Don't vote your conscience. Sometimes your conscience is opposite of the Bible or biblical perspective on something. So vote biblically if you have the opportunity to do that. The Christians in uh, the New Testament did not have that freedom. Uh, Principle number two, Romans chapter 13, 1 and 2. Christians are to submit to the government, even if you don't like it, didn't vote for it, it isn't your preference. We are to submit to the government. Principle number three in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Christians pray for those who govern them, and I've covered those before, but those kind of stand as principles for what we do regarding politics. But I want to answer this question from a different perspective. I've been working on our summer series, and we're going to go through the book of Daniel during the summer, and so I spent about the last two and a half, three months uh, preparing for that, and it's going to be a good series, and so don't go on vacation in the summer. (laughs) All right, it's it's going to be a good one. But there is an overarching theme in the book of Daniel, and it is this. Just because you are in Babylon doesn't mean that you have to become a Babylonian. Just because you are in Babylon doesn't mean you have to become a Babylonian. And just because Fox News and MSNBC and CNN run wall-to-wall on this stuff, and they do. The criticism, the paranoia, the if you vote fors, the whole world is going to come to an end sort of stuff. Wall-to-wall. I have a friend. He's a Christian. Um, He loves Jesus, but he is nonstop agitated, mad, paranoid, looking over his shoulder, the black helicopter, just, just... I tell you, turn off the turn off talk radio in your car, man. You know, just because you live in Babylon does not mean you need to be a Babylonian. Just because they're running wall to wall on this stuff does not mean you need to run wall to wall on this stuff. Calm your heart, pray to God. He's the one that has all this in control. He puts the people in place, no matter what what you vote for, really kind of a weird way to think about it. He he puts the people in place. Why them? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. Pray to God. Calm your heart. Allow God to to bring some sanity to you. Turn off the radio in your car on talk radio if you're getting to that agitated point. You don't have to 
live the way that our culture does politics. You're not required to have your heart agitated as much as it is on TV. You're not required to do that. Just because you live in Babylon doesn't mean that you have to become a, a Babylonian. And so allow God to calm your heart through prayer. Um, I'd say that is probably my, my biggest one. That I don't have cable at home. I don't have cable internet. Uh, or, or I mean, I have internet. I don't have cable TV. And there's some glories to that. You know, we watch TV on Netflix and stuff like that. But the glory of not having any TV is I only get the amount of politics that I want. You know, I have to go look for it on the computer. I have to go look for it, you know, and read articles or buy a newspaper. Nobody does that anymore. You read it online. But and as soon as I'm over it, I'm over it. I can just turn it off, you know. Um, there's a downside to that, though, too. Sometimes I'll have people come to me at church, and they've been watching something on the news, and it's just been running repeatedly for an entire week. This, 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 this every channel, this, this. And they come to me, and they're amped up up here. And they're just, it, it is really it has oppressed them. I can't figure out why. I read one article on it and moved on. But apparently, in Babylon, they're running wall-to-wall on whatever that was. And so, I'm at that point, I'm kind of a bad pastor because I don't quite get why this is such an oppressive issue. You are not required to be a Babylonian. You don't have to run wall-to-wall on this stuff. Allow God to comfort your heart. There is an ending to this, and God has control over it all. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Daniel. He has control over over it all. And that should settle our hearts in the middle of politics and all of those things. So maybe that's a little different answer than maybe you're looking for, but that'd be my encouragement to you there. Well, it is eight o'clock straight up, so we need to close in prayer. Dear God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the clarity of it. And I praise you that you put principles in your word that bring comfort to our hearts, to give us direction in even the unsaid areas of our lives that um, your word doesn't specifically address. It addresses it through principles. And I pray for the Christians of our church that they'd be willing to bend their lives to your word. I praise you that our church wants to have their lives tainted by you instead of the other way around where we try to force you into our way of thinking. So I pray that your word does exactly that, that it changes who we are from the inside and then going to the out. We praise you that your word does that for us. In Jesus' name, amen.